Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This month's episode features geneticist Aoife McClyset exploring our understanding of how new genes evolve, how they sometimes become essential and their link to diseases like cancer. Aoife's lecture was given as the 2016 JBS Haldane Lecture from the Genetics Society. Thank you very much for the lovely introduction. Thank you very much to the Genetics Society for um, inviting me to give this lecture and giving me this award. I, it's a huge honour. I really appreciate it. And um, I, uh, I agree that um, communicating science to the public is very important. I try to do it well, and I'm very happy that all of you have come to, to listen this evening and hopefully learn something new. So I'm going to talk about uh, new genes from scratch. And um, part of the reason we're interested in new genes is, so I work in evolution, and we're really interested in terms of evolution, we're like, how do new things happen? So we want to know, how do you get new stuff happening in evolution? And most of the time, um, well, some of the time, it's to do with new genes. Some of the time, it's to do with slightly different versions of a gene. But if we just take this example of some of my favorite dinosaurs, so um, these are all songbirds, and um, if you think about any birds in general, uh, we see that they're all quite different from each other. They're recognizably different. Um, I guess most of you can name them. And um, they're, so there are these species differences which are genetically encoded. So there's there, they have lots of differences between them. And uh, these are reliably reproduced generation after generation because they're genetic. These ones happen to be songbirds. So these ones sing as well. Not all birds sing. And um, these ones, and it's been calculated estimated that about 10% of the genes in the songbird genome, so the genome is a total DNA, about 10% of their genes are involved somehow in singing. And they have different songs and uh, different physical characteristics. So um, it's very interesting to know um, at a genetic level what's going on when we get evolution of new stuff. Um, I'm not actually going to be talking about Birds again. I just put them up because I just like them so much. But, <laughs> but anyway, so this is a picture of this is a photograph of what um, DNA looks like when we sequence it. So it's just these four letters A C T G, um, and then it's a sequence of A C T A A A T T G, whatever goes on and on and on. This is a picture from the uh, Wellcome Trust Museum, which is not too far away in London, where they actually took the rather peculiar step of printing out the human genome. So um, this is one page of one volume, and in the Wellcome Trust, there's a big bookcase that goes from the floor to the ceiling, and it's full of these big, big, heavy books which have the human genome in it, which is all to tell you that it's very, very big and very, very long. And Within this, we have genes, which are just substrings, so little strings of letters that do something. So a gene is just a bit of this that does something, usually um, making a protein. And so when we look at genes, we can look at uh, DNA and we can compare DNA across lots of different animals. So what I've done here, <clears throat> if we're comparing these different animals, so human, a very cute frog, 
some horned lizard, parrot and some fish, um, we can look at the DNA. So we have the human, that was the human genome sequence, but we have genome sequences for lots of other different animals as well. And when we look at the DNA and we look at the genes that are there, we can see ones like these blue ones in this picture where we can see the same gene is present in all of the different animals. So it might be a slightly different version of the gene, but we can still recognize that it's the same thing. So that by a different version, I mean some of the letters might be slightly different from one to the other, but the vast majority is going to be similar or the same. And so this similarity is enough that we can recognize that this is the same gene in all of these different animals. So we have maybe slightly different versions. And then we have ones like these orange ones over the other side. And these are ones where we don't see a correspondent in any of the other animals. So these are more like new genes. So about... 20%, depending on how you look, 10 to 20% of genes in, in certain groups of animals will be only found in that group of animals. So new genes are coming along um, relatively regularly and quite easily and quickly. So when we ask then, well, where do these new genes come from? So um, Jacques, uh, Francois Jacot um, won the Nobel Prize um, um, I'm not sure, maybe 50 years ago or so, for discovering some very, very fundamental properties of how uh, genes are regulated. But he wrote this wonderful essay about evolution as a tinkerer, evolution as tinkering. And the idea is that most of the time what we see in evolution is the reuse of parts, so things get recombined and reused all kinds of ways. So he said, to create is to recombine, and evolution does not produce novelties from scratch. So uh, here's this little example of uh, uh, some kind of non-novelty. Um, so this little dog is made out of old spoons and forks and pepper, sh pepper shaker, salt shaker. And we see this in terms of evolution. We see that genes get reused and repurposed for new functions. And this really is a very, very common uh, theme in terms of evolution, that what's there gets patched and reworked. And um, so sometimes evolution is described as, if you imagine you have a, a boat and you're going along and you're trying to fix the boat and all the time keep it afloat, so you can't just take it out and start from scratch. So you patch things, you use what you've got, and you cobble things together. And this is what we see a lot in terms of evolution. And part of the reason is because Genes are very complicated. So if we just take this straight line here, as imagine that's a string of those letters, ACTG, so this is a string of DNA. In terms of what a gene looks like in the DNA, it's quite complicated. So I'm going to give you a kind of simplified, cartoony version of that, but even still, you get the idea that there's quite a bit going on. So one of the things is, within this piece of DNA, there are these bits here, these orange bits, which are going to be specific sequence of letters. So when we talk about DNA sequences, a sequence of letters that are the right sequence to code for a specific protein. So this could be something like the keratin in your hair or your skin. It could be uh, opsin, light-sensitive pigment in your eye. It could be insulin um, in your... Uh, uh, the metabolic hormone protein. So it could be any of these different proteins. But there needs to be the correct sequence. And it has to start with, some, with the correct little signal to say where the beginning of the gene is. It also has to end with the correct signal to say where the end of the gene is. And if you notice here as well, 
I haven't put this, all this orange bit joined up because genes actually usually come in pieces. So when you look at our genome, most of the genes are in pieces. So another thing that has to happen is there, have to be some, there has to be some kind of information there at those little borders so that these bits get cut out at the right time. So that's kind of a little scissors. But then the other weird thing or complicated thing about genes, if you think about in your body, for example, you've got the same DNA in every cell in your body, yet within your body, you've got lots of different types of cells and different types of organs. So a liver cell is different from a brain cell, is different from a skin cell, and not because of the DNA they contain, but because of which genes are turned on and off. So the other thing that needs to be there to make a gene work is that it has to turn on in the right places, and also sometimes at the right time. So some of our genes are only active during embryonic development, and some are only active in response to some kind of stimulus. So all of these things need to be there. So even though I've grossly simplified this with just um, funny little uh, geometric shapes, you get the idea that genes are quite complicated things. So we so the simplest way then to get a new gene, and what we see most of the time in evolution, is the way you get a new gene is by copying an old gene. So this is what Jacot meant when he said uh, evolution does not create novelties from scratch, that we just recombine some of these old existing parts and that's how we get new things. And indeed, this is what we do see. But if we think again about this simple version of a gene, so we have a gene we can Think of it as a stretch of DNA when there's a nice, long, uninterrupted stretch between a start signal and a stop signal. So that's one way we can think of a gene, and we can look for a gene that way. And then we, so this start signal is a specific sequence in the DNA, and it's very, very simple. It's just ATG. So we only have four letters in DNA. We read them three letters at a time. And so the start signal is this very, very simple ATG. And the stop is also simple, so it's also a three-letter code. And one of the three letters that could be a stop is TAA. So there's also uh, TAG and TGA. Those are all of the stop signals. That's the only start signal. So we have in DNA, if we have a long stretch between a start like that and a stop signal, then that looks like a gene. Uh, by contrast, if we have stri strings of DNA like this, where we have kind of a jumble up of starts and stops and starts and stops. That doesn't look like a gene, that just looks like other random DNA sequence in our genome, and there is lots of that. So in our total genome, it's about three billion letters long, only 2% of that is genes. So the rest is other stuff. Some of it is probably something interesting that we don't understand yet, that's, that's very possible, but a lot of it is just hanging out, doing nothing. So it's just there. And, but in that sense, it's also raw material. So you can imagine how things could change. Mutations can happen anywhere in our total DNA, and some of those mutations might actually create something new. And, so, and it turns out this does happen sometimes. But because of this, uh, oh, sorry, the jumble up, sorry, whoops, uh, this jumble up, um, jumble of starts and stops. Um, Jaco also in this same essay, essay said, the probability that a functional protein would appear de novo is practically zero. So he dismissed this idea that you would get new genes from scratch. And this really was the prevailing view of evolution, that the only way you could get a new gene is by 
copying and recombining and uh, messing with existing genes. This was the prevailing view until about 10 years ago, maybe, when things started to change a little bit. And we started to notice that it's not common, it's still a rare event, but it does happen that we get new genes from scratch. So it's a rare but consistent feature in terms of evolution. So when we're talking about a new gene from scratch, this is basically what we imagine happens. This is at least one scenario where it could happen. So here's some random piece of DNA sequence again. And this piece of DNA sequence happens to have a couple of these stop signals in it and doesn't apparently have any start signals. So this isn't a gene. This isn't doing anything here. It's just one of those, one of that, part of that 98% that's non-gene uh, in our genome. But DNA, it's just a long, big, long chemical symbolized by these letters ACTG, as I said before. And mutations happen very easily. So there's lots of different ways you can get a change in DNA. Some of it is chemically induced. So, for example, in cigarette smoke, there's uh, mutagens which change DNA, which is why, uh, it, why that it can cause cancer so easily. But also, or every time your cells grow, every time a new cell grows, the DNA has to be copied, because they need to make a copy to parcel into that new cell. And every time you do that copying, there is a chance that there's an error. So there's lots of um, mechanisms for fixing errors. It was the Nobel Prize last year was for, for, was, uh, for scientists who understood better this, these mechanisms of DNA error checking, so DNA repair. Um, but still some mutations get through, which is a good thing, because without some variation, there wouldn't be any evolution. So we get mutations happening quite readily in terms of DNA. So if we start with this DNA sequence like this, um, if we look with a microscope, or sorry, a magnifying glass at this bit of sequence here, this bit there, we might see that that, is, that started out as ATA. So that's just a few uh, letters of DNA. But it's easy enough that a mutation could happen that that A gets replaced with a G. And now we've got an ATG, which is the start signal. So now already this piece of DNA has changed and where it only had stop signals before, now it's got a start. And then if we imagine another mutation could happen in this particular stop signal, which is a TAG, if we just get another mutation there, that's no longer a stop, and then you have something that might start looking like a gene. So you can see how the mutations that could happen can be quite easy in terms of, it's quite easy at least uh, to imagine that this sequence could happen and you now have this long stretch between a start and a stop signal, which could be a gene. So that would mean then that all the bits in between here are uh, coding for components of a protein. And I would guess that if this protein was produced by a cell, it would be kind of a junk protein. It's not going to be doing anything useful most of the time. It's, and this is also what Jacob meant when he said the chances of getting something functional are practically zero. So this is, this is just a random collection of amino acids put together into a protein, and the chances are fairly slim that that's going to be doing anything useful. But um, evolution is all predicated on slim chances, really. Chances are pretty slim that any of us would be here in the first place. And so we talk about new genes from scratch then. So it turns out we can find we found them in lots and lots of different places. So in my lab, we found new genes in human um, and also in uh, gorilla and mouse. The first findings of these new genes from scratch were in the 
beautiful fruit fly, Drosophila. It's been a model species for studying genetics since the very, very early days of genetics. And also then in, this is uh, Arabidopsis, which is um, a beautiful weed, which is also a model plant for understanding genetics. Uh, rice and yeast, which you'll be familiar with from bread and brewing, so a very, very important organism. But basically what we see is that any time you look for these new genes from scratch, which is a new gene that is originated by these just little mutations, um, changing a stretch of DNA that was a jumble up of starts and stops and changing it into one with a, a nice long stretch between a start and a stop. If you look for this, you find it, and, um, but you find a small number. So it's this rare but consistent feature in the genomes. But then, so that's kind of how you get a new gene. How do you get a new gene? Well, you either copy it, an existing one, and play around with it, or um, you have this new gene from scratch. But what kind of things do new genes do? What kind of effects can they have? Well, I've got a few examples. So here we have a case of a new gene that's associated with a new diet. So this, these two beautiful monkeys. So here, this is a Duke Langer, and this is a rhesus macaque. So these are two uh, different monkey species that are related to each other. And one of the things that distinguishes them is a di their diet. So the Duke Langer is a leaf eater primarily, so it's, it's got this new diet, and the macaque is like other monkeys, eats fruit and lots of other things, so it's a much more diverse diet. And the, the leaf eater has changed quite substantially. It now has four gut fer fermentation, a bit like a cow, um, and so because it's eating these leaves which are harder to digest. And all of these monkeys have this blue gene here, I've given you the name, but it's just, uh, so it's just this blue gene that's a normal gene in cellular metabolism. It's present in all of these monkeys and it's present in lots of other things as well. But just the Duke Langer, just this one, has this other extra gene. And you can kind of guess by the name, so this one's called Ornase 1, this is called Ornase 1b. This is an example where it's a gene that's been copied and then tampered with to do something different. So this yellow one is a special digestive enzyme that is special for the diet of this uh, Duke Langer monkey. So in, when it's with the foregut fermentation, what happens with the, the, with the digestion is in the foregut, most of the digestion is done by bacteria, and the bacteria are digesting all the, the leaf material, and then the monkey to actually get the nutrients in the end has to digest the bacteria. So um, this helps the monkey digest the bacteria which have digested its food. So it's a very uh, circuitous route to getting your nutrition, but that's what they do. So here we have this new gene then is very important for this new diet of this particular monkey. Um, we also have new genes for new physical shapes. So these are just different breeds of dogs. So all of these breeds have very short legs and the more standard long-legged dogs are over there. And so these short-legged dogs all have this gene, which it's a growth factor. The GF is growth factor. You don't need to know the names. But um, so they have this special gene, which is uniquely present in these short-legged ones. And this, this particular gene is a growth factor that's working, um, that's expressed in the legs and changes the leg morphology. So as you can see, the dogs are kind of otherwise 
similar to the long-legged one. So if you imagine you just put longer legs on the corgi, um, it would look a bit like an Alsatian, right? So the, the rest of the morphology is relatively uh, straightforward. But here we just have a new gene that has quite dramatically changed the shape of these breeds of dog. And of course, one of the very interesting things about dogs is even though they are so radically different from each other, they're still just one species. So all of these differences come from human uh, selective breeding. They have differences in uh, so genetic and reliably reproducible differences in morphology, in coat, but also in behavior, which is very, very interesting if you think about it. You have breed-specific behavioral patterns, and these are genetic, because this is why it tracks with the breed. So it tells us something very interesting about the genetic basis of behavior as well. And then another type of, uh, another perhaps um, example of a new gene is a new gene for a new habitat. So this is a, this is a um, Antarctic uh, fish, sometimes called Chilean sea bass. And it lives, so this um, map here is giving you uh, water temperature, and you won't be surprised to know that the water in the Antarctic is very, very cold. And so this fish lives in the Antarctic uh, waters, in the Antarctic Ocean, and it has a new gene that's only found in uh, these Antarctic fish, which is an antifreeze. So it has evolved an antifreeze protein to stop its, to stop its whole body freezing in the in the icy waters of the Antarctic. And so I'm just showing you, this one is the Chilean sea bass, which lives in the Antarctic. It actually happens that the, there is an independent instance of this in the Arctic. So Arctic fish have separately evolved a new gene, which is also an antifreeze gene. And we can tell by looking at the genes that they aren't the same gene. It happened independently in the two different instances. So this is a case where this new gene has allowed the fish move into a new habitat, or moving into the new habitat is linked with the evolution of this new gene. And so then we, have, we think about, okay, so we can imagine these little weird mutations that happen, that change something, that make something new. Sometimes, at least, this is something useful. Or I should mention that this particular example is a kind of a new gene from scratch. It's not a copy of an existing gene. Um, so, what, how, do, how does this gene, once it arises, how does it become common? So, if we imagine, again, the scenario, here we have the fish, so we've got this big school of fish, and um, this little one in the middle here, so, um, is got a slightly icier color because it can live in this slightly icier water. And so if we imagine what happens then in terms of with these fish um, living in these colder waters, if we imagine this is our uh, parent population and we've got this little pale yellow one here, uh, blue one here, um, which can survive a bit better, it copes a bit better with the icy water. Well, then what we say in terms of evolution um, is we say that this one is more fit. So this is, a, this is the way we, that's how we term it. So this is the survival of the fittest type idea. And you can imagine how this particular fish, because it's thriving better in the icy water where the others are not, you can just say, well, it's, more, it's likely that this one is gonna have a few more offspring than the others. So whereas this pale blue one might have three offspring, the others will have one, maybe two, and then there's a large number of these that don't leave any offspring at all. So we can see already our population has changed. If this is our starting population 
and this is one generation later, we already go from having just um, one fish carrying this new, new gene to three fish out of uh, 10 or something. So we go from 10% to 30% in, in this particular example. And then it just goes on like that. So now we've got this uh, uh, school of fish where we have, again, disproportionately the ones that are managing in this uh, colder water, this icier water, are surviving better, and it goes on like that. But then you can also imagine how this becomes somewhat incremental. Things can grow better. So here, this even paler fish is even better in the icy water, and this one, this this pale fish can start out competing. The this even paler fish can start out competing the others. So eventually, you can imagine how this can incrementally. Uh, the gene becomes established in the population because it is an advantage, and then any improvements on that gene will also uh, be preserved in the population. So this is natural selection. So natural selection is a very, very powerful force in nature, and it can explain, it can easily explain how we go from, uh, we have a new gene if it fortuitously confers some advantageous function, like the antifreeze uh, function, then it will be selected for. The individuals who carry that gene will thrive better and pass on their genes more often. So we can say that in this case, we're selecting between the haves and the have-nots. So this is a totally new gene from scratch, and if you have it, you're doing better. If you have not it, you don't. And so um, it's, we, can, we can see how this is kind of easy to explain, and it's logical and intuitive. And like another way of thinking about it is, even though getting a new gene from scratch and having a random collection of amino acids, it's very unlikely that this is going to be some beautiful, perfect protein. It might be a kind of slightly crummy protein, but even a slightly crummy protein is better than nothing. So it's okay. So yeah, we have this scenario, so something, even a kind of slightly crappy something, is, is better than nothing. So in this scenario, you can say it doesn't really matter that this protein, this gene doesn't arrive perfectly formed in the first instance. We can see the scenario where the pale blue then gets uh, replaced by the even paler blue in terms of the functionality of the gene. So this, this can make sense then. This uh, fits with what we know about evolution. But then as a general thing, we might say, okay, so the antifreeze, we can see how this is an important protein. But in general, we might say, well, how important are these proteins um, for the organisms that carry them. And one way we can measure how important a protein is, is we say, well, is it essential? We, and, and this essential rule, it's a kind of brutal measure of what is important, because we're basically saying, if, you, if the gene is absent, um, then in, if an essential gene is absent, then the individual will either uh, be inviable, so die, um, uh, before development or very, very early in their life, before reproduction, or will be sterile. So in terms of evolution, unfortunately, um, one's as bad as the other. Either way, you don't pass on your genes. And so this we say, if a gene is essential, then uh, you die or you're sterile without it. And for new genes, we basically expect they're not going to be essential because, of course, um, the organism has been living without them quite happily until then. And so I don't know how many of you know this um, saying, no? a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. <laughs> and so you might think these new genes, um, they, might be, they might be useful in the same way as a bicycle is useful for a fish. They're not really that uh, essential. But there are some, there's a, some strange examples of this. So 
these are all, um, everything in this picture here is a mammal, so I've got lots of different mammals, uh, including uh, kangaroo. So these are all, uh, so we've got eutherian mammals, and, the, and the kangaroo, with the kangaroo we've got therian, they're all therian mammals, so they all have a placenta. I've excluded uh, platypus, because they're the weird mammals, um, so, um, they're, so platypus are hilarious, because they're weird in just about every way anything can be weird. So not only do they look weird, you know, so this furry animal with a duck, but of course they lay eggs and they produce milk, which um, leads to the joke they're the only one that can produce their own custard. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, but their genome is completely weird as well. So um, you might be familiar already with the idea that um, sex determination in most mammals is determined by the X and the Y chromosomes. So if you've got XX, you're female, XY, you're male. Platypus does it completely differently. So first of all, it has sex chromosomes, but they aren't like the mammalian ones at all. They're a bit like uh, the bird ones, a bit like the, so the chicken sex chromosomes. And it doesn't have a pair of an X and a Y in a male. It has a chain of an X pairing with a bit of a Y, pairing with a different bit of an X and a bit of a Y, and so it ends up with 10, X chromo 10 sex chromosomes or something extremely weird. So platypus is weird in... I haven't found a way in which platypus is not weird yet. So I'm always growing my list of the ways platypus is weird. So I left platypus off here because it doesn't have a placenta. But all of the other mammals here are are uh, linked by the fact that they all, one of the links between them is that they all have a placenta. And because platypus doesn't have it, and no other animal has it, we know this is a new tissue. So this is a new tissue in uh, mammals. So it's a new special tissue. So this is not a real photograph, of course. This is some artist's impression, but um, an elephant and its placenta. But what the placenta is a very, very special tissue. It's a really, really fascinating tissue because it's where the maternal and the fetal tissue have to come right up against each other, but without actually mixing too much. Because if they mix too much, you're going to have an immune, uh, you have immune response of the maternal immune system against the fetal, the fetal tissue. And, even, and we all know that the the gas gets exchanged, so the oxygen um, is exchanged between the, the blood of the uh, mother and the fetus. But even then, they have to come close, but not mixing, because, of course, there's no guarantee that the mother and the fetus will have the same blood group, so it would just clot. So it's this amazing tissue where a lot has to go on. And um, this is just a kind of a little cartoon of a bit of that interface, where the red side is the maternal side, and the blue side is the fetal side. So think about some of the things that have to go on here. So oxygen and nutrients have to go from the maternal side to the fetal side. Waste has to go from the fetal side to the maternal side. And also, this, this, this tissue needs to also block the maternal immune response, because if, the, if a, the mother was mounting an immune response against the fetus, then she would just reject it and the pregnancy would be over. So this is an amazing tissue. It's a very, very special tissue. And um, there's even so, many, so many interesting things that go on with the placenta. I think I could probably give a three-hour lecture on it, but I won't. But I just want to point out one very special thing. So there's this. So here, this is supposed to be maternal blood, actually. And these are maternal cells. And the little black dot is just to indicate the nucleus, which is this center in the cell that contains all the DNA. And so we have here, we've got um, fetal cells as well. But then we've got this special thing on the fetal side. So if you imagine the last layer 
in the fetal side of the placenta is this, uh, this layer, which isn't a layer of cells. The cells have fused, and so it's one big, long, um, multinucleated cell, we call it. So it's a special thing that's happened here. So it's fused. So the cells have fused together and formed this special layer, which is a very important part of the placenta in terms and, and um, how the placenta functions properly for this very, very special function of keeping things close but separate. And so this is this special layer. And it turns out that this special layer of cells is established by these genes that are called syncytins. And the reason is because this multinucleated thing gets called a, a syncytium. So what happens is these syncytin, the syncytin gene produces a protein which is on the surface of the cells. And the neighboring cells, the syncytin of one is fusing with a syncytin on the other. And then the cell membranes fuse together. And so what were two separate cells with their own little packaging, but mediated by these special proteins, the cells join and their membranes, oops, membranes fuse. Um, so that's, that's what's happening here. And so it turns out, um, when you look at these, so this is a syncytin gene, and when you look at the sequence of this, so we get our magnifying glass and look at the sequence, and try and say, well, you know, where did this gene come from? Can we find where this gene came from by looking at the sequence? The same as we did with some of the other ones. We can look at the sequence and we see the similar uh, genes in other species. And it turns out where this gene came from is really peculiar, because this gene came from a virus. So this is a cartoon, but it's more or less what a virus looks like. So you've got a virus with these big particles sticking on the outside of it. And so we, and not only us, but all animals in our history have had viral infections back through the ages, back through the ages. And so um, in our DNA, our three billion letters, our big bookcase from the floor to the ceiling, where there's only 2% of that DNA is protein codeine, 8% of that DNA is virus DNA. So more virus DNA in your genome than protein coding. So, and this, these are viruses. So um, the difference between a viral infection and a bacterial infection is a bacterial, when you get a bacterial infection, it lives inside your body, but a viral infection lives inside your cells. So the first thing that a virus does when it's infecting a cell is, if you see these proteins, these are these structures on the outside of the, the virus, what they do is they don't just fire into a cell like a shot from a shotgun. They carefully come along, they dock, and they fuse into the cell. So they fuse their, member, they fuse their capsule with the uh, cell that they're entering. And then what they do is, the, um, so ones we call retroviruses, actually insert their DNA into your genome and make that little cell that they've infected into a little virus factory. And sometimes when this happens, it gets uh, established and transmitted onto the next generation, which is how we have 8% of our DNA is actually viral DNA. So you can kind of get some of the similarities already. Not only is there a similarity in the sequence, but when a virus is um, causing that infection, it has to carefully dock and cause the fusion of the virus particle with the cell it's entering. Another thing the virus needs to do is evade the immune system of the, of the organism that it's infecting, otherwise it doesn't survive well at all. So you can see how this gene has been, this, this retrovirus gene has been repurposed for this new function in 
mammals. And so something that we consider so inherently mammalian, this tissue that's a, one of the characteristics of, the defining characteristics of mammals, this very important part of this tissue is actually established by a virus gene, which is a legacy of a really ancient infection. And then it gets even weirder in this one, because, so we see these, the syncytion gene in humans, but in mouse, they also have syncytions, they also have a placenta, it's not a surprise. But I've made this a different color on purpose because actually the gene in mouse is different from the gene in human. So whereas we can see that most of the time, if you look at, for example, uh, the globin genes that are carrying oxygen in your blood and you look at the human ones and you look at the mouse ones, you can see they're a little bit different because there's been some time for changes to occur. But they're more different, they're more similar to each other than they are to anything um, older, anything other, older than mammals. So within the mammals, they're going to be more similar to each other because they've been inherited directly from their common ancestor. But in this case, the mouse gene, it's also a retroviral gene, so it came from a, a similar source, but it's not the same retroviral, it's not the same um, capture of the gene. So the gene has been captured from the virus and it's a different capture. So this is, um, this is weird. So this gene in mouse is younger than the placenta. So the placenta is an old tissue that's shared by all of the mammals, and this is a new gene doing an old trick and this is a new gene doing an old trick. And when you look across different mammals, we see the same thing again. We see in different groups of mammals, they all have syncytin genes, and um, every example I know of is stolen from a past retroviral infection, but they're all new versions of it. So they've happened again and again and again independently. So this is weird. This is harder to explain than the fish that has the fish with the antifreeze protein, that there's fish with no antifreeze protein, and now we've got a slightly crummy one, and it gets better and better. This is much harder to explain. So this one was easy. In terms of the fish, we can say, you get an antifreeze protein, we can see how natural selection will um, favor the fish that survive better compared to the ones that don't have that gene or have a less good version of the gene. But when we're talking about this gene in the placenta, if we, think, if we rephrase it in terms of the fish, it's like saying that all of the fish have the antifreeze protein, and then a new gene comes along, so a new mutation comes along that makes a protein that's a really crappy antifreeze. So this, all of these fish already have a good antifreeze, and now some of them have an, one of them, let's say, to start off with, has a second gene, which is a crappy antifreeze. That's no advantage at all. That we can't, it's harder to explain how this becomes established as a new gene. How would, you, how would it ever happen that the new gene would replace an old functioning one? So this is much, much harder to explain. And so it could be, so this is something we still don't know for sure, but um, it could be a very special kind of evolution, which is an antagonistic evolution. So here I've shown this, um, balancing scales because it's the idea that you have different competing interests and this is the antagonism. And so it's a very special kind of evolution um, and you, uh, because it creates, it, it does unusual things and we create, see different kinds of patterns in evolution. And one kind of antagonism, for example, is the antagonism between the maternal interests and the fetal interests. So it's in the interests of the fetus to grow big 
uh, fast, whereas it's in the interests of the, uh, on the maternal side to, uh, first of all, save some resources for maybe a subsequent pregnancy and not, yourself, not get so depleted in the pregnancy that uh, you, you die yourself. So you can see how there's antagonistic interests there. So there's a bit of a push and pull. And so this is sometimes called red queen evolution, this antagonistic evolution. And that's because of this um, little sentence in, in Alice Through the Looking Glass, uh, Lewis Carroll's uh, second Alice book. And so he talks about the Red Queen, who says it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. And this is, this, so, um, the reason we've um, taken this phrase and used it in evolution is because what we often see with this kind of antagonistic evolution is even though things are changing very quickly at one level, so at one level being looking at the DNA sequence, we see a lot of changes, so we can see the gene is different here than here, the relationship hasn't changed. So they've stayed in the same place, so there's still, uh, in this case, still a placenta that's functioning well, and the fetal side or the maternal side doing well, but there's a lot of change happening. It's a bit like you know, the, the swan gracefully going along the pond with the paddling underneath. So it takes all the running you can do just to keep in the same place. So the qualitative relationship has not changed, even though underneath it all, there's a lot going on. So this is a, a very special, um, special kind of evolution. And so here's an example of where this has done something really, um, again, a peculiar um, scenario in terms of evolution. So here we have this uh, beautiful beetle, Trebolium, and there's a gene in these beetles that's called Medea, and you'll see why in a moment. So I'm symbolizing that here with this M. So we've got um, two different mother beetles here, one carrying the M and the other one not. And um, these beetles can have offspring, of course, and they may or they may not pass the gene on to their offspring. So some of these offspring don't have the gene. And what we see in this case, we have a mother that carries this Medea gene. The offspring that don't carry it die. So, you see that, you go, well, it must be that it's an essential gene. It must be one of these genes that's really important for survival. But then if you have a mother, then we have the mother that doesn't carry the gene, and some of her offspring may or may not carry Medea, because the, the, from the paternal side, they may inherit this gene. But here, there's no difference. So these ones that don't have this gene can live. So this is a weird gene. So this is a case where it's not essential, except if the mother has it. So this is called a maternal effect lethal. And it's called Medea after another Medea. So um, I don't know if you know your Greek mythology, but Medea, I don't know if she was Jason's wife or her love, his lover, but when he left her, to spite him, she killed their children. So Medea kills her children, and this Medea gene is a maternal effect lethal. So it's a very, very strange uh, scenario. And so we can see that if we have a population of beetles that don't have this Medea gene, they're just fine, and we'll see generation after generation, they're all doing well, and they're living uh, and thriving. But if we have a population that contains some beetles, a uh, uh, fraction of them, have this Medea, then the ones that don't have it die. And so very, very quickly, the whole population carries the gene. So we can see there's this, uh, this strange, strange evolutionary pattern here, where something that's absolutely not essential um, 
apparently becomes essential. So we have Medea, beetles can live just fine without Medea. I have to check, did I spell it? Oh, I always do that. <laughs> I didn't do it on the other slides. Um, <laughs> but um, so the, the beetles um, without, uh, can live just fine <laughs> without Medea, except when they can't. And um, so we see this, this is a very... It's a strange situation. So this gene isn't essential, but it's essential. So actually, what's going on here underneath the hood? So it turns out this Medea is actually two genes joined together. It's a toxin and it's an antidote. It's its own toxin and antidote combination. So what happens is when you have a Medea mother, the egg cell is a maternal cell. So the egg is a cell produced by the mother, which then gets fertilized by the sperm from the father, and then that's the beginning of the new individual. So this is a maternal cell, and because the mother contain, uh, has the Medea gene, her cell has the, the toxin in it, which I hear is the purple. So this Medea, Medea um, these are her cells, and they contain the toxin. And some of these will con also contain the Medea gene, depending on whether they inherit it or not. So, and they... This Medea then also carries the antidote. So these ones have the toxin, but not the antidote. And these ones have the toxin and the antidote. So what we see is only those that also carry the gene can survive. So this is what's happening. So this is really, really peculiar. It sounds like strange science fiction, doesn't it? But it's actually a, a real example and a real gene. And um, so, <laughs> like a fish needs a bicycle. Do they need Medea? Well, no, but actually, yes. So this is a strange evolutionary, there's a strange antagonism between the toxin and the antidote, and this has explained, in this particular case, it can explain how this new gene has become established even when it wasn't apparently needed. And so if we talk about um, evolutionary antagonism, so maternal fetal is the example um, I was giving, so with the, the syncytin gene, so there's this antagonism which is possibly driving the replacement of one gene with the other. Um, there's also maternal paternal antagonism. So in terms of there can be there are genes that uh, so uh, because the in because the the paternal side is just supplying the genes basically, and the maternal side is supplying all the uh, nutrition for the young. It's in the, the paternal interests to be greedy, but the maternal interests to kind of reserve something for later. So we see some genes where we have extra rapid growth, um, so paternal genes where there's more rapid growth going on. Also, host pathogens, so if you get a bacterial infection, you are hosting that bacteria, and so and there's antagonism there, and so we see a lot of very new, um, rapid evolution, very special patterns of evolution in immune genes, and we see this, this is a real um, a characteristic of immune genes because of this red queen evolution. It's also potential in predator-prey and plant-herbivore relationships, though in this case, um, it's probably a, it's, it's a less dynamic thing because the, uh, the plant life cycle and the herbivore life cycle are so um, dramatically out of sync. But another way it can happen internally in an organism is to do with uh, cell growth and cell death. So you are constantly growing even after you stop getting taller because your cells are renewing themselves. And so the cells are growing in that sense, but they're also dying at the right time, which is why you 
stop getting bigger after puberty. Um, and when they stop dying at the right time, um, well, that's usually called cancer. So cancer is when cell growth has gone out of control and they don't die at the right time. So we have this potential antagonism here. So when we look back again then at the new genes from scratch, and we say, okay, new genes from scratch in the human lineage, um, there's about 40 new genes from scratch, these totally new genes in the human ape lineage. And most of these, we don't really know what they do, and that's because we can't do experiments on humans so easily. Um, go figure. Anybody volunteer for a gene knockout experiment? I don't think so. Or volunteer your uh, next generation? No. Anyway, so we mostly don't know about what they do, but there's a few that we know um, kind of almost by accident because they've been found um, associated with particular features or particular conditions. And so there's only six with some known function. So these are rather, they're terribly unpronounceable and uninteresting names. But one of them, this one, is also from a retroviral origin. So, and this one is involved in stem cell differentiation. So if you imagine the just fertilized egg uh, has to grow into any, has to grow in every possible kind of cell, including placental and everything um, on the fetal side. And so um, the, the, this particular gene is involved in maintaining that undifferentiated state um, for a little bit longer. And this is a human-specific gene. The, the, in mouse, they also have a gene that does this, but it's a different gene. So it's again, it's a bit like the, the placental genes I was telling you about. This one um, does something in the brain, we're not exactly sure it is expressed there. But the other four are all involved in cancer, at least when they go wrong, they've got, um, so they've got either they go wrong and they're involved in cancer, or when they go right, they are mitigating cancer outcomes. So, um, so we can suggest that this might not be a coincidence. So when, we, when the circumstances under which a new gene might, can evolve from scratch might be so special um, that maybe they, they are always, or maybe they're predominantly going to arise at these antagonistic interfaces. So this is maybe not a surprise. So that's what I wanted to say to you today. So um, in terms of new genes, we sometimes get new genes that do something brand new. We sometimes get new genes doing something brand old. Uh, some of these uh, new genes are essential, but they're also useless, which is an interesting paradox. And many of them are possibly arising at these antagonistic interfaces. And this might be tied in with actually how they become established. So I'll just say thank you to the people in my lab who are wonderful. And this is also Lawrence Hurst, who works in Bath University. And some of the ideas um, I talked about this evening, I developed with him. So, um, and thank you all for your attention. Okay, so I'd like to open it, this session to any questions that you might have. If we could have the lights up a little bit more. There's roving microphones. So yes, just here. Hi, uh, one question about, uh, you mentioned that this mechanism of new genes which arise from mutation and uh, retroviruses. Do you also have genes which stop being useful, like, you know, where, um, for example, in fishes which are found in dark caves where they, use, where they lose the functionality? Yes. And uh, what fraction of these would you find in, say, in, in mammals which... Were once useful and have become so, less so I don't know uh, for the 
I don't know the total number. So we call them pseudogenes because they, they, it, uh, we can see that they used to be a gene, but they're also, they've got these stops and things interrupting them. And one example I do know is um, so olfactory receptor genes, which are, um, give us the, the diversity in our sense of smell. So humans and other primates, especially uh, the ones that have trichromatic color vision, we use our sense of smell a lot less. And so what's happened is, um, over evolutionary time, this, the, you, your sense of smell became less important for your chances of survival. And many of these genes have degraded in the way you're talking about. So um, the, we have, in mammalian genomes, we see about 800 of these genes. And in um, the human genome, oh, I forget now the fraction, but it's a large fraction of those are not working anymore. So yes, it goes in the other direction as well. Any other questions? Oh, one right there. This is a voice from above. Hello. <laughs> when you talk about these fish in Arctic waters producing a new antifreeze, yes. um, and presumably this thing is being produced on some statistical basis, do the fish in, in tropical waters produce that gene at the same sort of rate? I can understand once the gene is produced, it's a good thing in Arctic waters and it survives. But is there environmental pressure that's producing the new gene? So that gene actually isn't found in the tropical fish. It's, it has newly evolved just in certain species of fish. So most fish don't have it at all. So it is a case where it's a, a new gene that arose specifically in small number of species that live in those waters, and it doesn't exist in the other fish. The chance to be produced in Yes, so it's not produced in the, uh, in the other fish, yes. Other questions? Yes, one over here. Can I just ask how you work out that it, it, there is a new gene? Is it, given the fact we only recently know about genomes, so to speak, it, do you have to look at different animals within the same species and make a comparison? Is that how you do it? Yes, so you'd look across different animals. And so, for example, if, I, if it doesn't take too long to flick back, um, bam, 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 bam. So what you see is where I had the case where this one. Um, oh, no, this one. So you, what you could see in a case like this is, let's say, for example, the bottom line is um, human. And I'm looking at this sequence in human. Then I would look for the sequence in, say, chimpanzee or in macaque. And then um, what you can observe is when you look at the DNA sequence, you can see this is clearly the same, the equivalent piece of the genome because this white line is all letters of DNA. You can see that most of them are the same, so you can see it's really, really similar. But I can just see just this small number of differences. So because this one, for example, if this was chimpanzee, has this stop right here, we'd say, okay, well, that's not a gene because it's far too short. At least we're making that assumption. And this one out here, we'd say it's also not a gene because it doesn't have doesn't have the start signal. So if this was human, chimp, and macaque, if those were three sequences from different species rather than um, from different times, then we could say, well, it looks like the common ancestor of all of these didn't have the gene and that these changes happened in this order. So that is how we can try and reconstruct the, the sequence of events. Yes, question just there. Hello, great talk, thanks. Thank it was you. very accessible. My question regards the slide with tribolium and the yeah. Medea. 
So that struck me as an interesting way in which you could use a gene to like, cause changes in populations. You got it. Could, you, um, could, yeah. could humans exploit that to yeah. like, control pest populations? Yes, it has, that system has been used for pest control. You're, you're so quick. Um, yes, that exact system has been exploited to introduce new genes into pests so that they can be controlled. Well done. Can you recommend some reading on that? <laughs> <laughs> um, on that specific... Okay, yeah, uh, maybe uh, I'll get your email address or something. <laughs> There'll be drinks afterwards. That might yeah. be a time to pick up. Yeah. There's a question just there by... And there's also Stone one in front, yeah. Um, thank you very much. I'd like to sort of divert you a little bit. Yeah. On information. One of the things I used to do was to look at the computer programs in pharmaceutical manufacturing. And there, what you were talking about, 90% of the, the genome may be dead code. Well, in fact, what we used to do was, when we were writing a specification, after a few years, you find the computer program for your manufacturing contains more dead code than useful code. And in fact, the highest paid engineers <laughs> in this job were called the validation engineers. And when you talk to them, they said, well, I spend 90% of my time removing dead code. Now, you were saying at one time that um, modifications may be making proteins that aren't of any use. And I was just wondering what the mechanism is to uh, stop this dead code actually doing non-useful things. Mm -hmm. And one of the other things we've been at these various lectures and things, we're almost understanding photosynthesis. And the thought was that we could make it better. Well, could we make it even better if we eliminated the dead code? Okay. Well, so the first part of your question is slightly easier to answer. So what is the mechanism for getting rid of all that uh, dead code in terms of the genome? It is to uh, have a huge population and produce lots and lots of offspring and let natural selection go wild. And so if you look at bacterial genomes, they are much neater. Bacterial genomes where they've got much faster generation time, huge populations, then the, the bacterial genome is much more streamlined. So bacterial genome looks like it was designed by one of your brilliant engineers, um, whereas the human genome doesn't look like it at all. And so, um, and so animals like us, we have actually quite small populations, and this means that selection isn't quite as effective as it would be. So um, a lot of only slightly bad things get through. So the way to get rid of it is to be a bacteria. But um, in terms of improving photosynthesis, um, I'm not sure that any of the, um, the non potentially non-functioning DNA inhibits photosynthesis in any way. So in terms of how photosynthesis would be made better, it's, my guess would be that it's more to do with actually the, the specific proteins rather than the stuff that's just hanging around the background. Pardon? So the cell in general would be a little more energy efficient if it wasn't having to every replication cycle copy a pile of DNA that it didn't need to copy. But um, that would just be the gen. It's a, it's a, that's a, an energy, small energy cost in general for any of the processes. Yeah. There's another question at the top there. Hi. Um, if you have a new gene from scratch, as you discussed. Uh, how do you and do you get uh, the regulatory gene uh, in front of it in order to promote uh, transcription? So um, it can happen multiple ways. 
One way is that, one thing we've noticed is that these new genes from scratch tend to arise very, very close to older genes. So maybe overlapping them a little bit or right beside them. So they're probably recycling, in a sense, the regulatory uh, signals for the existing gene. That's one thing. The other is that um, one thing we have seen recently in terms of the genome is what we use. So um, when we talk about the piece of DNA, we talk about it being expressed, which is when it's producing the produ producing its function, so it's RNA and the, producing the protein ultimately. And it turns out that that happens a lot in an unregulated way as well. So it happens brilliantly regulated um, most of the time for a lot of very important genes, but also there's kind of like this little background ticking over going on. So it seems that it's probably not as big a hurdle to overcome as we used to think, so that a lot of genes are, a lot of, a lot of the DNA is expressed at a low level, even though that's non-functional. So it's just happening and then just getting recycled again. So, it's, uh, so that, that, that's another way in which it could get started. Okay, yes, question over there. So um, I'm having a little bit of trouble understanding. So let's say there's a mutation in one of my genes right now. Yeah. And it turns out to be a beneficial mutation. Yes, yes. How does it get uh, passed on to my kids? Because it has to eventually get into my sperm and kind of move on. So like, how does it... Yeah. From so it has to, in, in, in the case of a multicellular organism like us, the mutation must occur in what we call your germline, which is just the cells that lead to the sperm or the egg. So anything that happens in your skin or anywhere else in your body will not be inherited by your children. So what happens usually is um, it would be a, a spontaneous mutation during egg or sperm uh, formation or somewhere on that path which then means not you, but your children, or in, in, if we're talking about you, uh, so it would be your parents, right? So a spontaneous mutation in the germline of either of your parents gives you that mutation, which means it's not just in some cells of your body, it's in all cells of your body, including your germline. So then you pass it on too. So that's, that's the way it would work. Question here, and then a question at the, oh, ah, question at the top That's there. amazing. <laughs> Hi, um, so you mentioned about how antifreeze um, is developed in Antarctic and Arctic fish. And I read somewhere that it's believed that if time is, rewind, if, is rewound and natural selection takes place all over again, then it would occur the same way as it has currently. And this is an example of it. So is there any evidence to suggest that elsewhere and, and any evidence to suggest otherwise as well? So um, it can occur the same in the sense that the end result is very similar and that both in the Arctic and in the Antarctic, the fish have produced antifreeze proteins that have similar properties, but it didn't happen in, in the same way. So, um, so, this, so it's if um, a, an organism or a population is faced with a particular kind of uh, challenge, um, we do see examples where, even though the specific events happen independently, the ultimate end is similar. So it's so it's it's not it's not happening exactly the same. And there is an interesting there's an interesting set of experiments to do with this. So there's a really amazing experiment where, um, in the 1980s, um, uh, this guy called Rich Linsky started this long-term evolution experiment with bacteria. <coughs> so he's growing the bacteria in 
what we call minimal media, which is just, so they're very, very limited in terms of the nutrients they have. And he's been letting them evolve um, uh, over this uh, 30 years. So they've just, this is one of the longest experiments going. It's not the longest, but um, then, so July this year, they passed 60,000 generations, so 60,000 generations of bacteria. And so they've been accumulating, letting the mutations accumulate under this stress, which is the stress of living with really minimal nutrients. And what they did was they did it many times in parallel. So they have the original starting stock of bacteria and they're growing them in these flasks. And every day it's somebody's awful job to just like take a little um, uh, like dropper of uh, bacteria and put them into a new flask and go along. And what you see in these bacteria is something similar to what you're saying, which is that um, even though different mutations have happened in the different lines, so they've got many, many parallel lines evolving over this time, they have um, had very, some similar effects in terms of they've happened in the same uh, metabolic pathways or sometimes different mutations in the same genes. So we can see that then for some particular, when you, when you narrow it down to a particular kind of stress, there might be, let's say, a limited uh, range of options available. So there are... There are parallels, which are very interesting as well. But if you rewound evolution back far enough, you know, we probably wouldn't <laughs> come about. So it <laughs> depends on how, how, how far you rewind. There's a question just here. So you mentioned the, the sensitive uh, genes coming from a, a retrovirus, but wh where is retrovirus coming from? I mean, it's not alien, is it? It's not what? Alien. Alien. No. Okay. Okay. So everything's got its origin back somewhere. So that's not. A, yeah. So that's not exam. That's not an example of a gene totally from scratch. Is that your point? That's a, a domestication of a gene from elsewhere. Well, yeah. I presume the gene is coming from 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 an, another organism or something. So it 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 has been kind of recycled or so moving from from one system to another. So it's, it's the envelope gene of the virus is the one that's become the syncytion. Um, I'm not sure. Um, so viral origins are really, really... Um, the evolutionary origins of viruses are quite mysterious. So um, there's still some debate about whether... So viruses, nowadays all the viruses we know about need cells to live in. So, so by that logic you'd say that cellular life had to exist before viruses, but there's still other people who argue that actually, even though that's what we see today, it's not necessarily the same as the origins, and viruses might predate cellular so life. In but other words, the, 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 the sensitive genes, uh, I mean, obviously it has to come from another organism, maybe with a different function, and then somehow... So, you mean, so, well, it, so do you mean something other than the retrovirus? I mean, the, 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 the genetic material in the retrovirus must come from, from something else. And then, as you said, then suddenly we would have a, an effect and by, by fusing the cells, making, I mean, making placenta. In, in so wherever, the, so the, the envelope gene, the, so the, in retroviruses, the envelope, the gag, and the pol, the three, those three genes are characteristic of uh, the viruses. And wherever they came from, if they did come from somewhere else, it is way back way, way, way back when. So um, those, are, those are very much viral genes uh, for, for a long, long time. So the, the, the retroviral genes, so I don't know how many hundreds of millions of years, but a lot, a lot earlier, like, so they're much earlier than, uh, probably um, than metazoan life, so. Okay. <laughs> yes, there's a question up there. <laughs> uh -huh. 
Is there a, an environmental signalling mechanism that uh, impacts the change in gene? Do you kind of infer that it was in the bacteriological in experiments and in, with the antifreeze gene? I, I originated this question from all the stuff on the Galapagos and the, uh, the apparently very similar species adapting to their environment in a strange way. Is it just natural selection or is there something that signals the direction of change from the environment to the gene? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so no, the um, so the what happens is that you have the mutations arise spontaneously, and some of them may fortuitously uh, provide an advantage in a particular environment. And what happens is when uh, you have a change in environment, which could be something like moving into the icier waters, or it could be moving to an island where suddenly you don't have competitors, that's also a change in environment that shifts what may or may not give you an advantage. So, um, so for example, the animals or any species moving into the Galapagos where they were previously uninhabited, they could be crummy at a job and still win. So, uh, because they don't have a competition. Uh, so you have this, these mutations that are, many, many mutations are spontaneously generated all the time and fortuitously some of them give an advantage and then yeah, in different circumstances, there'd be different ones. So, I'm, I just have a question about this question, really. Okay. I, I, thought, I thought that epigenetics was all about genes being activated by an environmental sort of factor, and actually you can turn on genes from your environment rather than... So, all the, so what's expressed isn't just what's in your DNA, but it's also slightly your environment growing up as well. Okay, so that there is some truth in that and um, some other, that's a, a kind of a common misunderstanding. So I already said earlier how all the DNA in all of your cells is identical and different, but different cells have different identities um, uh, because genes are turned on and off. So in one way that is the epigenetics that we're talking about, which is that you've got genes turned on and turned off. So they're suppressed, and, and some of this is responsive and um, the, to, a, to a degree, but that's not heritable. So, for example, um, and that's where there's a, perhaps a misunderstanding in uh, a lot of the media, where they talk about, um, you know, you, you do something and you uh, affect your your uh, offspring. So um, that's so it's. So it's the same way with the earlier question about, you know, for something to be inherited, it has to happen in your your germline. So all of these epigenetic modifications that turn on and off some of the cells in different parts of your body, they get wiped clean in the new generation, which is how they can start from scratch again. So normally if you, um, you know, if you scratch your skin and your skin starts healing, new skin cells grow. And because these cells are differentiated, the, um, the fertilized egg is the only cell that's capable of growing into everything. So, um, so uh, the Epigenetic modifications you're talking about are um, there is a, there is a dynamism in terms of biology and genetics, and but it's not heritable and it's not quite as big a deal as you yeah. might think. So, yeah, but they're wrong. <laughs> yeah, they're wrong. <laughs> you agree with me, right? <laughs> I'm sure the geneticists over there agree with me. Yeah. Transgenerational epigenetic. So. Yeah, yeah. 
There's a question here. Thank you for a very stimulating lecture. Thank you. This may not be a, a fair question, but your first slide on the songbirds <laughs> stirred up a, a problem that I've thought about for years and no answer. I understand that male songbirds, if incubated in the, in the laboratory, they don't hear any bird song. In some cases, like blackbirds, will actually sing the true song of the species. I think chaffinches have got to hear. If, the, if, if they're singing the true song of the species, never having heard it, is that encoded in the DNA somehow? What's the mechanism whereby <laughs> the DNA can produce... The first question was easy, the second yeah. one is hard. Is it encoded in the DNA somewhere? Yes. How? I don't know. <laughs> How do you code song in... I don't know. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> That's why we all study genetics, because it's so fascinating. Does <laughs> in the room have any ideas? Pardon? Does anybody else in the room have any ideas? I don't know. Does anybody want to know how you can encode birdsong in four letters? Somewhere within three billion letters. <laughs> no, it's hard. <laughs> Question over here. Hi. Um, you were talking about evolutionary antagonism, and when you were talking about it, you were talking about... Um, different selection pressures on different competing organisms. But if the selection pressure is operating on the same organism, I'm thinking about sort of um, malaria versus sickle cell anemia. Is that still evolutionary antagonism or not? Um, I would probably class that along with a, a, some, as an antagonism as well, in a sense, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, so that, well, that's again two organisms because the sickle cell is the, in the human yeah. hemoglobin, yeah. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> There's a question, oh, that question there and then a question there. Thank you. You've been talking as if genes are single units, but they're not. They're composed of exons and introns. And the introns compose a, a vast amount uh, of the DNA in comparison to the active parts, the exons. What contribution do you think uh, occurs if you can exonize an intron? We've seen it in malignant cells. We've been able to report uh, the generation of new proteins that provide cancer cells with um, a selective advantage. But how common do you think this is as part of a natural mechanism as to, as to where the new yeah. genes are coming from? Yes, um, so I don't know the statistics in terms of how common it is, but it definitely happens. I know, um, I know, many, I know examples of it, but I don't know the number, if, you're, if that's what you're asking. But yes, so that is one way in which... Um, so I suppose you would say it's not the whole gene that's new, but there's a new part of the gene because it's expanded into either some of the space in the crevices or in, in the neighbourhood. Um, and um, that might be, um, so the, you said, as uh, in some cancers. So in that case, it could be because you're producing a now weird protein because you had the, the let's say, the correct version of the protein now just has a, this strange chunk in the middle of it, but it might have all of that uh, machinery for high expression and um, a lot of protein produced, so that might make what would have been a slightly nuisance protein into a very toxic protein because it's produced at a high amount. But um, I don't know the statistics, I don't remember the statistics of how often it happens, but yes, it happen it's, it's an it's, it's a interesting component in terms of evolution of genes, yes. There's a question in the middle there. How can the Medea cell both be a toxin and an antidote? Basically, it's uh, two genes that are right beside each other. So it's, it's, it's so we, um, it was thought that it was one gene at first, because, and, but it's actually two that are right, right beside each other. Because they're right beside each other, they 
um, always get inherited together. So it was people thought it was one gene at first. So it's one gene that's producing uh, a toxin and another one that's producing an antidote. And the in the case of um, so in the case of the um, the the toxin is produced here. I'll just get it um, here here. So the toxin in this case is produced in the mother's cell, but the antidote isn't active yet, and the antidote only kicks in later. So um, if that makes a bit more sense, yeah? Cool. That's a question just here. Um, given that bacteria have more streamlined uh, DNA, um, what's the frequency of, uh, of uh, genes from scratch in bacteria um, compared to uh, organisms with a lot of junk? DNA? It's never been found in bacteria. So, and so genes from scratch must have happened at the very, very origins of life. And so, um, but uh, because we didn't have genes and then there were genes. Um, but um, it seems in bacteria it probably doesn't happen. Or, or it's extremely rare, it hasn't been found. Okay. There's another one there. Oh, I see just, one. Just that. Same guy, epigenetics. I'll start, start with you, and then a question over there. Um, it's more of a clarification type thing. Because earlier you mentioned on the slide with the different genes that spontaneous mutations occur. But how? Okay. So, because we know that DNA replicates, and it's very precise. So how do these spontaneous mutations So occur? one is just is very uh, kind of trivial, just an error during replication. So um, when DNA replicates, so you've got the, the double helix, if you think of it like a, a rope ladder, a twisted rope ladder, so it pulls apart in the middle and you construct a new half on the old template. So wherever you see a T, you should put an A to match it. If you see an A, you should put a T to match it. If you see a C, you put a G to match it, and G matching a C. And sometimes it just is a mistake. So sometimes where there's a G, instead of putting a C, a T is put in or an A is put in, and that's a replication error. Many of those get fixed, but not all of them do. And then once it doesn't get fixed, then it's, it's uh, established. Another is um, chemical. So uh, DNA is a chemical, after all. And so one very common kind of mutation is, uh, so if you, so we always write the components of DNA as just the letters A, C, T, G. But if you were a chemist and you drew them out their structures, you would see that some of them have very similar, in particular C and T have a very similar structure to each other. So it's a very small chemical difference that changes a C into a T. And it's not only a small chemical difference, it's an easily come by chemical difference. So it's just in terms of chemistry it can happen. And then again, when you've got mutagens, so uh, they change, mutagens change DNA as well in a chemical way. So UV light being one mutagen, that's, what, that's how uh, skin cancer is associated with exposure to UV. And uh, cigarette smoke contains lots of mutagens. And so there's chemical mutagens as well, so externally. And uh, also possibly internally metabolic byproducts, so free radicals can sometimes... So, but um, a lot of these are corrected by the cell's own error correcting mechanism. But some get through, and if some didn't get through, um, there'd be no evolution. So there's a sweet spot. Okay, there's a question just here. Um, I'm just asking about, well, given how unlikely it is for a new protein to be to just appear in any in anything, um, let alone you know be expressed in a big a big number of people a big number of organisms. 
Um, is there any way of, 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 is there any research being done into taking the human genome, taking little bits, editing them a bit, and seeing what proteins might be produced and like how they could be useful in, or in, in any organism? You mean deliberate, just... Um... So, so yeah, so it, normally in nature, there's like one little yeah. change and so it might be useful. So um, I can't, I'm, I mean, so you're talking about a mutagen experiment, a mutation experiment, um, not in humans, right? But um, it is a kind of experiment that can be done. So um, in human, so the, maybe, the, I don't know, I think not in humans, but you can do mutation experiments. And so in terms of the early, um, the early days of genetics, I mentioned the, the beautiful Drosophila fruit fly, um, most of the strategy of genetics was to cause mutations and see what happens. So that was, the, that was how genes were identified and understood. Um, but it turns out that it's much easier to break something than make it better. So most, most changes um, are disruptive and a very small number um, are advantageous. Any more questions? <laughs> we are getting there. <laughs> Um, in uh, polyploidization, we see really rapid epigenetic sort of uh, change in order to make use of that new um, kind of spare genome. When there's only a single gene duplication or, um, or a new gene coming in from something like a retrovirus, do we know anything about how fast sort of the epigenome is changed? Uh, I don't know about any epigenetic changes and in polyploidization. What epigenetic changes are you thinking of? Oh, just, just after it's copied across, you yeah. see loads of um, differences between the two genomes, and it, you can really rapidly have new expression. Uh, so I don't... Okay, um, so uh, that's not necessarily epigenetic, though. It's just um, changes, genetic changes in expression. I don't know of any uh, epigenetic changes there. But I think it's... Gen uh, so in terms of... Ch genetic changes in regulatory patterns. So, um, but in terms of, uh, so you're saying duplicating one gene versus duplicating all of the genes at once. Um, so um, the special advantage of duplicating all of the genes at once is that, it, so it's a special um, evolutionary event which uh, carries, so all of the genes get carried w with it even if there's only a small advantage from some. Um, but in terms of what you're asking me, how often do single gene duplications result in differences between the pair of genes that are now created? Sorry, I mean sort of um, how quickly is there an epigenetic difference between a duplicated gene or a new gene? And the rest of the so, so a genetic difference, let's call it, because um, <laughs> it's not epigenetic. Um, it's, so how quickly do duplicated genes diverge? It depends. So not all of them will, um, so some of them won't change at all. So we see examples of duplicated genes where they're just producing more of the same. Um, and some will get lost again before we even know about it. So, and, um, so it's going to be different for different genes. So many of the duplicated genes we see are different, slightly different. So they either have different expression patterns, is what you're talking about, so turned on and off at different times or places, or they might do a slightly different thing than each other. But I think there's no one answer to that. It's very case-specific, I'd say. Okay. 
There's a question there, and then I think that will have to be the last question in the middle. <laughs> in stereo. Um, you, so you talked about how gene mutations might occur. Um, can you tell you a little bit about chromosomal mutations? How would you? How does that happen? How do you create a okay. new chromosome? Yeah. So, um, so various kinds of chromosomal mutations. So one could be having an extra copy of a chromosome. So, for example, trisomy 21 um, that causes Down syndrome is an extra copy of chromosome 21, and this would happen. So during the production of it's usually uh, during, during the production of the egg. Um, so what happens is you have nor in a normal cell in your body, you've got two copies of every chromosome. But in an egg, you've got one copy of every chromosome. And in a sperm, you've got one copy of every chromosome. So there's a special type of cell division that occurs only for producing eggs and sperm. And in that case, the final part of that is producing a cell that is one copy of every chromosome. So the, the split is dividing chromosomes evenly between um, four cells, as it turns out. But so sometimes that partitioning of the chromosomes doesn't happen correctly. So you'll have one cell that contains two of one of them and the other has zero. So this one with zero probably dies because the cell is missing a whole chromosome. And then this one has an extra copy of a chromosome. So, uh, and by the way, trisomy 21, uh, chromosome 21 is the, it's the mildest of any of them. So say for example, chromosome one, in terms of that mistake during cell division, it could just as easily happen to chromosome one as it happens to chromosome 21. But when it happens to chromosome one, the effects are so devastating that the cell spontaneously dies or, or perhaps the, the, uh, the fer fertilized egg doesn't develop at all. So that's one kind, so that's an extra copy of a chromosome. The other kind of chromosomal um, abnormality you might be talking about is where you have a bit of chromosome one attached to the end of chromosome nine, for example. So they've been like, so it's like people have put the, somebody's put the jigsaw pieces in the wrong place. And this happens, again, it's, um, it's a kind of a mechanical, chemical um, thing in terms of the DNA where the, uh, so the DNA breaks and rejoins quite a lot. So this happens uh, quite a lot that DNA breaks and rejoins. And if it breaks and rejoins in the wrong way, then you're going to get a bit of chromosome 1 stuck to a bit of chromosome 9. So that's another kind of chromosomal abnormality. So it's not a change in... So you're right, it's a difference in that it's not a change in the letters, it's a change in, in where they are. Okay. Well, I think we'll have to stop there. I'd like to invite you to join me in thanking Eva for yeah, such a, a lucid and entertaining thank talk. You. Thank you.